Welcome back to our eighth day of our 10 days, 10 Mahler symphonies project here at Attention to Detail. Today we're reviewing Mahler's gigantic eighth symphony, often called Symphony of a Thousand due to the massive number of orchestral forces and players that it uses. It's scored for two mixed choirs, a boys choir, eight solo vocal soloists, and tons of orchestral players. So it's a kind of massive monumental work that's that's tough to wrap one's head around and we're gonna actually I think break it into two parts because it's written in two parts and I think we'll release the second part tomorrow there's so much going on in the world right now and and my life as I'm sure many people's life is uh and schedule is is shifting every day and there are certain demands that need to be met and need to adapt to the, the quickly changing circumstances. So I'll bring you part one today, part two tomorrow. I imagine not that many people are will be super disappointed by that because we've put out already seven Mahler symphonies and those are a lot to make make it through just by themselves. So, But we'll have it to you shortly. Part of the reason why I want to do that is because part two is really massive and as I'll mention, parts one and two have very different this is, a, this is a symphony that is really a fully vocal symphony. Singers sing throughout, unlike any other symphony that Mahler wrote. He himself said that he had previously reserved text just for key moments where he felt that the music simply could not explain to the fullest extent what a text could convey in a very short amount of time. But he saved those texts for, you know, key moments in his symphonies. Here we have vocal parts throughout, and so the texts are very important. Part of the reason why we're going to do part two tomorrow is because the text of the second part is from uh, Faust Part Two uh, by Goethe, and this is a book that admittedly, I've, I've actually read Faust Part One, I've not read Faust Part Two because it is uh, notoriously, incredibly dense, full of allegory and illusion. I think that's why Mahler was so drawn to the text, but it's a, a real challenge to, to crack, and I am no literary expert, so I'm going to try my best over the course of the next 24 hours to wrap my head a little bit around it, but that being said, our overview of the Eighth Symphony in its entirety here is going to be primarily focused on the music. We're a, we're a music podcast, not a not a literary or textual analysis podcast, and so we're going to stick to primarily the music, although the text is really, really going to be important as well. And one thing that I want to suggest about this piece as we go through the music, which I think is really interesting, this is my own personal thoughts on the piece. A lot of the stuff that I've gone through to this point is is more just factual or things that we see in the music, but here's something I... I for this symphony, which is so hard for me to personally gra grapple with and wrap my head around, I've come up with my own kind of take on the piece, and I want to offer that to, to our listeners today, because I think this symphony is uniquely hard to understand in Mahler's, in the context of Mahler's output. It's so different from anything else that he wrote, and it's, in many ways, it, interestingly, it was the most well-received symphony in the time that he wrote it. And in fact, Mahler himself spoke 
very highly of this symphony. He thought of it in a way as his magnum opus to that date. And that's kind of where my own interpretation of this piece comes in, because I really think that this is kind of a summation of so much of the work that he had done to that point. And we really hear that in many, many thematic connections that he makes between this symphony and so many of his other symphonies. And so I want to highlight some of those as we go through, in addition to doing our, our standard overview, which, which will be a little bare bones, because this is just such a massive, extensive piece. So let's look at the first part. A few words about the symphony on the whole. It was written in 1906, as I mentioned, really well received. And this first part, one of the perplexing things to so many commentators and listeners about this piece is that the two texts that are set to the two parts are really, really seemingly disparate. One of them is, this first part is a text from the ninth century, this medieval Christian text, Veni Creator Spiritus, very classically Latin religious language. And the other text, as I mentioned, is, is uh, Faust Part Two, which is, you know, a work in mid-19th century of, of German Romanticism, uh, not only a different language, but also totally different style, totally different set of questions it's trying to answer. But interestingly, I think as we'll see, there are th some the thematic connections between the parts, and those thematic connections come at moments in the text where Mahler is connecting the two ideas. And, and I think the idea, the overwhelming idea that permeates Mahler's reading of both parts is the idea of love being a redeeming uh, quality or a redeeming kind of factor in, in this very kind of religious worldview. The thing that ultimately brings us salvation is, is love. There's also this concept of, of uh, in Goethe, of kind of the eternal feminine, which we'll deal with a little bit in the second part because that, that's so important to the second part. A um, lot of interesting, albeit probably outdated, gender uh, kind of ideas that, that permeate, especially the, the Faust, but, but um, we'll, we'll deal with those when, when we actually get to the second part. But now we're, we're dealing with the first part, Veni Creator Spiritus, and let's listen to the opening of this, this massive symphony, which also includes an organ, so many uh, different orchestral instruments and forces, and right off the bat, we hear one of the main themes of the symphony, this, this Veni Creator Spiritus motif that's going to play such an important role throughout this part and throughout the piece. So here's how this, uh, this symphony opens. Himself said that this first movement unfolds in a pretty standardly symphonic form. And what he probably meant by that is uh, 
some sort of sonata. And actually we can construct, we can view this first part much more simple than the second part, that's for sure, as something of a sonata. And so if this is a sonata, which we've talked about many times already on this Mahler uh, project, we have two contrasting themes. And I want to point out an interesting thing to you about this first theme that many people have noticed, which is that the, f the first theme goes... And if we're viewing this piece as somewhat autobiographical, magnum opus, and Mahler is hinting at elements of himself, we've got this, this line to open, Veni Creator Spiritus, that, you know, it's a Christian text, it's a Latin text, but the melody we hear, if we break it down closely, goes like this. I'm gonna add one note. Now this is a famous, actually, Mao Tzur, this is a song that, if you're like me and you celebrate Hanukkah, we sing at Hanukkah, and it, it goes like this. So he's actually taken this ancient uh, Jewish melody and he's he's converted it into in a way potentially we don't know that that's he was he was using this for sure but it sounds very similar to this first motif of Veni Creator Spiritus. Now it's a sonata as I mentioned potentially that's that's one way to analyze the movement. So let's listen to the second theme, which is also going to play a massive massive role. to the incredibly bombastic theme of the opening. We get a more lyrical theme. We hear the soloists introduced as we sing, as they sing the first half of the, the second half of the first stanza. So we hear the return of the Veni Creator theme, something that's a little bit abnormal if we're in a sonata. And then we get kind of an orchestral interlude, big orchestral interlude. You hear this bell um, and I want to play for you the, the closing section of what we call the exposition of this sonata, the third theme that we'll hear, the third idea of this, this exposition that's going to be important, sung on the text of Infirma Nostri Corporis, which means confirm our mortal frame, and then it says with thy strength, which never decays. If you want to look up the text to this whole movement, I encourage you to do that. It's it's a little bit arcane. It's uh, like many Latin texts, you know, to me, my humble opinion doesn't actually say that much, but regardless, it inspired some excellent music. But here we hear this kind of, it's the first uh, sense of doubt that we have in what's mostly a very um, uh, exclamatory text. So let's hear this Inferma Nostri Corporis music which is the other uh, music of the exposition we really want to keep in mind.
interestingly, the choir is singing. It's, it's very imposing, spooky music now, very different from the opening. But classic Malerian technique, he's taken the rhythm. Boom, 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 boom. And he's slowed it down and he's turned it. The, the exact same rhythm is what the choir sings in this much more eerie section of music. But we also hear that solo violin. People have commented that that solo violin is, is very reminiscent of the moment, if you remember all the way back to the second symphony, right before we had the moment of resurrection, we heard a nightingale played by the flute and the piccolo, the last semblance of life on earth. And the rhythm, the character of this violin is so similar to that nightingale, it's hard to not hear that connection, a very religious last movement of the the second. And so again, this is one of the first semantic clues, I think, where Mahler is referring back to his earlier works to give us an idea about what this actual piece that he's writing now is about. Um, and we'll see many, many more of these quotations leading me personally to believe that he's also summing up his own work in, in this magnum opus. So we then get uh, the end of, of the exposition. And as I mentioned, one of the, one of the themes that will come from, from this text and certainly from the, the Goethe text is the idea of love as kind of being the ultimate form of salvation and what, what, what ultimately leads you to your eternal life salvation, whatever you want to call it. The, the last line of the second stanza of this Veni Creator text, or the last two lines, is the living spring, the living fire, sweet unction, and true love. The, these are the gifts from God above that this text says. And so we get this little clue that that love is one of God's greatest gifts to mankind. And I think Mahler clings to that to connect these two texts, but let's listen to how he sets this passage. We'll hear yet another quote from his himself, um, another famous love theme that he wrote previously. from the Adagietto movement of the Fifth Symphony. If you remember back from the symphony we reviewed yesterday, this was Mahler's first piece that he wrote and devoted to his soon-to-be wife, Alma, his ultimate declaration of love. So no coincidence that he very explicitly quotes that piece right here to demonstrate this, this idea of love permeating every section of this, this symphony. to the development of this big sonata form. Remember, the development is where we take these themes and transform them uh, standardly. But 
Interestingly, we've noticed in previous Mahler breakdowns as well that the development section is really where he he gets his money worth, and this is where most of the dramatic action happens. And this is a massively expanded development section with kind of six episodes of sorts. He does use the themes um, from the opening, but each of these sections has a really, really unique character. I want to play for you the beginning of the development because it actually sounds like, to me, uh, like nothing Mahler ever wrote, and actually more like music of something like Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique, Last Movement, which is this incredibly evocative witch's dance where we hear a bell, which you'll hear, and these kind of fragments of ideas. Something like this, really un-Malerian, and so it's, it's an interesting... Uh, little passage. We'll get several other of these passages later in the piece that also sound like nothing else that Mahler really ever wrote. So then in, in sharp contrast to this kind of fragmented, eerie music of the first section of the development, we get this long uh, kind of aria-like section for a bass soloist where we hear some more text, but this feels very romantic. Again, it doesn't feel super Malerian. It feels like he's going through styles of other composers almost. This is almost uh, Tchaikovskyan or... Brahmsian, maybe neither of those composers wrote this way for voice, even Verdi in, in a certain way. But again, not really music that we necessarily associate with Mahler. And then we come to another moment that's important for me. Again, I said I was going to skip a lot of stuff in this, but, but let me highlight some important moments that I think are really worth cluing into, because we get yet another quote of the, the Mahler adagietto, that same passage, Let's listen to that second time we hear the adagietto music, the kind of music that we're supposed to associate with the idea of love. follows this this love connoting music is music in E major and we've heard E major several times in the works of Mahler if you remember back to the finale of the fourth symphony this was the goal of the third and fourth symphonies which are all about the idea of love um, we hear a moment in the a breakthrough moment in the love theme of the third movement of the sixth symphony in E major um, this is a key that Mahler clearly associated with love, and in this piece, E major is the second most important key to that of E flat, the key of the actual piece, a very heroic key, the key of Beethoven's heroic symphony. But E major for Mahler is really the key of love, and so we hear this shift, and they sound by name E flat, E, like they'd be close, but actually, harmonically, uh, they are worlds away from each other. They share very few notes of the scale with each other, and so they sound like complete other worlds. 
So we hear a long passage in E major, we can't help but hearing back to these similar passages in the sixth symphony and the fourth symphony. And then we come to a, an entirely new theme, what's going to be one of the most important themes of this symphony, on the text of Accende. And this text, for some reason, Mahler decided to, to really highlight this text, and we, we, can, we can learn why. The text is Accende Lumen Sensibus Infunde Amorem Cordibus. And my Latin is terrible, I apologize, but and guide our minds with thy blessed light, with love our hearts in flame. So again, we hear this suggestion of love as being kind of the ultimate guide for us, I think, to reach, reach some sort of salvation. And so this Accende theme is going to come in E major, the key of love, and most importantly, this theme we're now going to also associate with, with these ideas of love, and this will permeate not only this part, but the second part. So there's a very, very important moment in the middle of the development, the third section of the development, where we first hear this new idea. theme in our mind just just as we go along that's going to play an important role I can't help but hearing the similarities between that and the resurrection theme of the second movement similar drop and then rising figure so again might be referencing some element of of his his past output. We hear the entrance of the boys choir here meant to represent these kind of more angelic voices. No coincidence that they come at this moment of E major and when we hear this theme for the first time, even more emphasis to the fact that this is gonna be a really, really important theme for us. Then we continue to move along in the development and we come to maybe our fourth section of the development. And I want you to listen to this passage because now We've entered much more, this is no longer triumphant music, we've entered something of a battle scene. And I'll play for you a little bit of this music from the fourth section, and again for me, I hear a quote back to uh, one of the most picturesque and evocative battle scenes that Mahler wrote. So here's that sort of battle music fourth section of the development of this, this first part. Surprisingly, the text of this passage shifts uh, enormously from what we were hearing before. The choir sings, Far from us drive our hellish foe, true peace unto us bring, and through all perils guide us safe beneath thy sacred wing. So we're, we're battling some sort of hellish foe, 
uh, trying to make it through, through perils. And I hear very clearly in this passage, I would listen to it again because it's a little buried, but this quote from the second symphony, where if you remember, we have this evocative battle scene in the middle of this picture of the apocalypse that's going on. Let me play for you that passage, short passage from the second symphony. So if you hear in the middle of that passage, the trumpets play, and then, which is exactly the same figure that the choir is singing when we start this, this battle passage there. So I can't help but again thinking that Mahler is, is associating all of these textual references with his own prior music. So then we, we hear more, more sections of the development. We get this elaborate double fugue. As we mentioned, for example, we had all this fugal material in the fifth symphony of fugue is where different voices enter. And we get a fugue of not one, but two themes, reminiscent of the music of Bach, something that Mahler had been interested in when writing the fifth symphony. We hear an explosion of the Accende theme, the one that we had heard in in E major, a lot of this music towards the end of the development is incredibly ruckus. It's actually hard to make head or tail of a lot of this because it just hits you over the head so heavily in a way. Um, and then we come to another big important moment in E major, and I want us to listen to that because anytime we arrive at this key, it's, it's certainly important and evocative of that world of love. And so let's listen to this massive E major moment towards the end of the development. Explosion of E major, Mahler is, is playing with tons of what we call counterpoint in music, which is the interweaving of different voices. Much of the end of this development, that's what a fugue is, is, is a type of counterpoint. And you can hear all these things going on at the same time. It's incredibly dense, uh, intense music. And then right at the end, we heard the music is going to slip back into not E major, but E flat major, the original key, the key of our Veni Creator Spiritus theme. And we eventually get one more massive build that leads us back to what we can only hear as a recapitulation. Here's where it kind of confirms this layout of a potential sonata form of this first movement because we come back to what we had been expecting from the very beginning to hear this Veni Creator Spiritus theme once more. So here's that build up and then the moment that we get the, the recapitulation.
struck listening to this, actually, this is a recording by Tenstedt, who is a famous conductor and Mahler interpreter we've, we've mentioned before on this podcast. Um, Mahler gives us very few tempo markings compared to many of his other symphonies in this piece, actually. But somehow Tenstedt decides there, when he comes back to the recapitulation, I, I hope we can hear it, it's so much slower than boom, 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 boom. It's like half as slow. Um, or twice as slow, I should say. And really interesting choice, not in the score. That's a whole other debate if we if we change tempos that are not in the score, which we won't deal with today. But in any case, certainly gives us uh, the sense that we've arrived at something, but maybe sounds a little bit less like a recapitulation than it would if he took the the original tempo. Just a little nugget to think about. But in any case, we get... Uh, the second theme, which we heard before, returns. It's actually a very important theme, the kind of creator theme, we might call it. Um, we get another orchestral interlude like we had in the exposition in E major now. So we're more, more and more we're hearing this, this music of, of love or this key of love. And then we come to a coda, which interestingly just builds and builds and builds and it recaps all of the themes that we've been introduced to. And I want to play for you, first I want to play for you uh, the end of the third, the first movement of the third symphony, which if you think way back, the first movement of the third symphony was this massive movement that kind of stood as its own part that led to the second part of the third symphony, the narrative of which was ultimately finding that love is the greatest form of enlightenment. And the end of the first part, it cues us up for the second before, uh, uh, you know, we take a big break and then we hear the second part of the third symphony. And he quotes himself at the end of this first part of the eighth symphony, quoting back to the, the first movement of the third symphony. And I, I can't help but think, again, not only is this a thematic quotation, a self-quotation, but also that the narrative of that second part of the third symphony was one of eventually finding that love is the ultimate triumph or the ultimate form of salvation, we're going to find the exact same thing in, in this, this piece. And so why not end with a quote from, from that third symphony? So let's listen to the passage from the third symphony, and then we'll listen to the, the blistering ending coda of this, this first part of the eighth symphony. section play this figure then it continues but that's all we need to to latch on to if I just lower that by what we call a step so so I want us to keep that in our ears now as we listen to this coda to the last movement because the first thing you'll hear on this clip that I play it is the choir come in and sing that exact motif. And then much like the ending of the first movement of the third, it spins off into a ruckus finale, but we're gonna hear some other important themes. So here's the, the very exciting coda to this first part of the Eighth Symphony. 
despite being really exciting music, actually an enormous amount happens in that clip. And so it was hard to hear, but the boys choir first sings this. That quote from the, the first movement of the third symphony. Then we hear these repeated attempts. We hear that Veni motive that goes. Sing it over again. Over and over. It's like it's reaching for something. And then you might have noticed we hear this one very striking moment where it goes. Up to this high note. But it leaps this one time to that really high note. And that's actually going to be super important because that transformation of this kind of reaching to the heavens motive is actually going to come back at another, you might have guessed it, the end of the second part, the most crucial moment in the entire piece. Then we hear this second theme idea, the creator theme. And if you notice right at the end, we also hear the accende theme, which we've learned is this kind of love theme, the trumpets play. And then it, it closes with this huge amount of bombast and, and triumph. But we get all of our ideas confirming this notion that, I think the quote from the Third Symphony, this uh, reaching with this veni, uh, motive motif up to this kind of higher note, the accende motif that we hear right towards the end, all confirmation that of what's to come in the second part, which is going to be this this uh, ascent to heaven and all about the redeeming power of love. So that's the first, the relatively short first part in in the context of what's going to be an hour of music in the in the second part. And for our standards here at, at Attention to Detail, relatively short breakdown, but thanks for joining us and we'll be back tomorrow with the massive second part of uh, the Eighth Symphony. And if you're, if you're caught up and wanna do a little research like I'm gonna be doing, crack open part two of Faust. I wish you good luck. It's gonna be, uh, I wouldn't say it's the easiest read, but that's what I'll be doing for the next 24 hours. And uh, until next time, enjoy and we'll, we'll see you soon. Thanks as always.